0: Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Welcome back. Today I have the immense pleasure of welcoming David Bose. He is the executive vice president of the Cato Institute. Over the years, Bose has been on the forefront of fighting for libertarian ideas. And today we're going to be talking about what that means. I read the most recent edition of one of his books, The Libertarian Mind: A Manifesto for Freedom. Today, I would like to talk about what it means to be a libertarian and what libertarians stand for. I think this will be useful to many people listening and also to myself because there's a lot of confusion around what the term means, what the beliefs are and why they are centered around freedom the way they are and stuff. Libertarians, for instance, are no hippies of the right. Libertarians do care about minorities, do care about poor people. And yes, there are women who identify as libertarians. So welcome. Thank you. Before we start, I want to ask you a question that I ask all my guests, which is, what is the most important thing people my age or in my generation should know that we don't?
1: I think the most important thing that young people probably don't realize is that the world is so much better than it used to be because we don't focus on what's good. We focus on the problems. We talk about poverty, inequality, AIDS, COVID, um, racism, all those kinds of things. What we don't think about is in the first place for 10,000 years, the world was just pretty stagnant that if, if you were a farmer, your son would be a farmer in the same place and his son and his son and his son. And I'm saying son because the women would just be the wives. Um, and then around 1750 or so in Northwestern Europe, that started to change and suddenly things were getting better. We we realized things could get better, and they did. And we're now, who knows, 30 times richer than our ancestors in 1800 were. And richer doesn't mean that we're like Bill Gates. It means that we have houses. We have internal heating. We have more than one pair of pants. Um, we don't understand how poor people were for so many years, but even in my own lifetime. Um, people were much poorer in the 1950s, the 1960s, I shouldn't say much poorer. I mean, we did get a television when I was a kid, it was black and white. And then later we got a color television, but comfort, convenience, everyone participating in the social and economic life of the nation. Um, so much of that has changed women's rights, gay rights, more respect for immigrants, for racial minorities. In the past 25 years, a billion people have come out of extreme poverty around the world. Now, there's still poverty, and we should still be concerned about it, and we should still talk about what would make more people come out of poverty. But I think too often we forget how much better in terms of prosperity, equality, liberty, dignity things are than they used to be.
0: That it just puts it so much into perspective, just everything about life today. Like, I don't know. I mean, imagine if like a pandemic had happened like years and years ago, and pandemics have happened in history. This obviously is not the first one, but people being locked in their houses and everything, like it, it's still... Not possible for some people, some people are really struggling, but like less people are struggling than if it had happened like fifty years ago, hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, which is kind of interesting to talk to think about I mean that's not like the only way, but that's kind of what I'm thinking about right now because of recent events but i like I like thinking about how we're better off now because I don't know. It makes me feel better because everything you see everywhere all the time is life sucks. This is awful. Look at all the problems we have. But actually, we're 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 not doing that bad comparatively. So And yeah. an
1: important reason that things are better is that people did complain about what wasn't working right. And they worked to fix it. And most of that work to fix it, well, we'll get into that, was stripping away the controls that the state and the ruling classes imposed on people so that we couldn't have market exchange, we couldn't have uh, equality for all sorts of people. Um, we, we overturned those old rules that restricted us. Um, and obviously, we also developed better moral rules, charity, all sorts of things like that. But we should understand how much better things are. And also remember that it's a process and it, it takes people being disgruntled, being annoyed to make things get better.
0: Before we kind of jump into the libertarian mind, freedom stuff. Well, this is kind of related to that, but not exactly. I want to ask you kind of about Cato. Um I'm a big fan. I have interviewed many of your colleagues on this podcast, and everyone has so many interesting things to say, and just very, they're very knowledgeable, you know. But one thing I've never really asked is kind of what is Cato, when was it founded, why, and what do you guys do?
1: Well, the Cato Institute is a public policy research organization, sometimes called a think tank. It was founded in 1977. Uh, we celebrated our 40th anniversary recently. And what we do, it's a public policy research organization. We research public policy, um, whether that's taxes and spending or uh, police reform or environmental issues, education, foreign policy, all kinds of policy issues. And then we present the results of our research. And we do that in books and studies and congressional testimony and op-eds and newspaper articles and now podcasts as well as radio and TV shows. So that's what we do. We, we get smart people who are committed to the ideas of individual rights and limited government and free markets and peace. We get those people together. And we tell them to research social problems, policy problems, and analyze them and come up with answers.
0: So let's talk about the libertarian mind, a manifesto for freedom. In the very first line of your book, you talk about how libertarianism is the philosophy of freedom, the idea that adult individuals have the right and responsibility to make important decisions about their lives. Can you tell us what you mean by this exactly, and how is the notion of freedom different from the, from the notion of freedom used by liberals or conservatives who both also claim to believe in freedom?
1: Well, in a lot of ways, since the time of around 1750, when the world changed and liberalism came into the world, the idea of liberalism, which was eventually called that, it was an idea before it had a name, Uh, the idea that individual people have rights and it is wrong to violate those rights. Um, And freedom consists in people being able to make the important decisions about their own lives and not have those decisions made for them or the choices they would like to make closed off. That's that's really the basic philosophy that almost all Americans hold. So in some sense, at root, I think modern liberals, modern conservatives, and modern libertarians all believe in these fundamental things. If you think back to the early part of that period, the 17th century, the 18th century, even the early 19th century, you have people who don't really believe in those things. Old-fashioned conservatives believed that monarchs were justified in ruling, that the nobility had authority, rights that the rest of people did not have, that there was an established church and everyone needed to belong to it because it would be disruptive to society. I mean, you might believe that because you believe that this church is the way and the truth and the life, but you might also believe that everybody needs to belong to the same church because otherwise you would have cultural war in the society. So liberalism challenged all of those things. Liberalism challenged the idea of an established church in favor of freedom of religion. It challenged the idea of monarchy and nobility in favor of uh rulers chosen by the people. It challenged mercantilism and said, no, we should have competitive markets. It said it shouldn't be the case that you just uh, do whatever your father did. It said that people should be able to rise according to their own talents and their own work. And pretty much everybody, the Heritage Foundation, the Brookings Institution, Reaganites, uh, Bernie Kratts, they all believe those things. So, in that sense, pretty much all Americans believe broadly in freedom—freedom freedom of religion, freedom of speech, uh, freedom to choose your own life path—and broadly speaking, in private property and free markets. When we get into more specifics, uh, then we have some more. Then we have some disagreements, and there might be people on the right who would say well, we can only be free if we forbid people from doing a lot of things that might be dangerous. And we have people on the left actually saying the same thing. We have to forbid people from doing things that might be dangerous, but also say you can't be free if you don't have money and health care and a job and all of those sorts of things. And so then we get into definitely a discussion of what is the definition of freedom, but also what are the results of these various policies. Libertarians believe that if you look around the world and you look around history and you look at the results, the freer the country, the more prosperous people become, the more social harmony and the more social tolerance there is, um, the more people rise out of poverty and are able to participate fully in social and economic life. Um, Actually, defining freedom or liberty is a challenge, and philosophers work on it. Um, I guess I basically come down to the idea that freedom is my right to make the decisions that are important in my life and to do whatever I want to so long as I do not violate the equal freedom of others. There's an American folk saying, you know, your right to swing your arm ends where my nose begins. Well, that's right. As, as, as long as you don't hit me, you're welcome to, to swing your arms. Um, I sometimes say uh, libertarianism is, the, is, is something you learn in kindergarten. Uh, don't hit other people. Don't take their stuff and keep your promises. And so if we don't use the force of government to force people to live the way I want them to rather than the way they choose to if we don't use force either privately like robbers and burglars do or through government to take people's things Um, and if we make people keep their promises including their contracts. If I contract to hire you to do a certain job and you do the job, uh, then I'm obligated to pay. If I contract to pay a mortgage, then I'm obligated to do that. and. If I don't do in either of these cases, then I'm violating the rights of the person I contracted with. So don't hit other people. Don't take their stuff and keep your promises.
0: There's a libertarian party, but I feel like what we're talking about is more of a pre-political concept, the small L libertarian. Can you explain the difference?
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, Whenever I say libertarian, I'm using a small L, and that, that's an idea. Um, it's an idea like environmentalist or liberal or beautiful. Um, it's a description. Um, libertarian party with a capital L, well, that's an organized political party. They run candidates. I consider myself a Republican and a Democrat with a small R and a small D, And I'm also a liberal. In New York, there's a liberal party. I'm not a member of the liberal party, but I am a liberal and a libertarian and a Republican and more or less a Democrat, though I would not want mass mob democracy. Um, So, right, there's a libertarian party. I was in it when I was younger. Now I work at a think tank, so I don't do politics. I'm I'm an independent in politics and a libertarian in ideas.
0: In your book, you write that libertarian is quote not a complete guide to life end quote. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and how libertarianism takes a role in your life?
1: Sure. Well, I think libertarianism is a political philosophy. It's about the use of force. When is it legitimate to use force among people? And it's a philosophy of what the government should do or not do. Um, whereas a philosophy about how to live your life might be your religious faith. It might You might say, I'm a Stoic or an Epicurean or whatever. Um, I don't think libertarianism tells you very much about how to treat your children, how to treat your friends, how to treat your employees. What libertarianism says is, look, you can't beat your children, you can't lock them in a closet, then you're violating their rights. Um, It says if you contract to pay your employees, you have to pay them. Um, It says you can't hit your friends and take their stuff. But other than that, there's a great deal that we all need to learn about how to be successful people and how to be good people that doesn't come from any political philosophy. It comes from a moral philosophy, from a religious philosophy, uh, but not politics,
0: You identify with a natural rights tradition of libertarianism that I feel like that is libertarianism, but can you explain to us what the natural right tradition is and how it influences your libertarianism and how it's different from other justifications?
1: Well, uh, natural rights is a longstanding tradition. Um, philosophical tradition in the Western world. It goes back to John Locke in his second treatise of government and better scholars than myself would say, oh no, it goes back before John Locke. Look at, look at the antecedents in Aquinas, look at, look at all the way back to Aristotle. Um, the phrasing I like is what's in the Declaration of Independence. All men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What does unalienable mean? Well, first, in modern English, it means inalienable, meaning not capable of being alienated, meaning I have a right to the house that I bought, but I could sell you that house, and then I would have alienated my right in that house. I would no longer have it. What I can't do is sell or give away my right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, Those rights are inalienable. They inhere inhere in the nature of man, mankind, humankind. Um, We don't think, most libertarians at least, don't think ants or bees or cats or whales have rights. They may, it may be right for human beings to treat animals with kindness and dignity, but it's not a matter of rights. Rights in here within the human species, and they say, we as human beings, not because we're white, not because our father is king, nothing like that, as human beings, we have these rights, and given that we have these rights, we're able to interact with each other as equals.
0: When we talk about rights, it doesn't seem to be positive rights. We have the right to this, we have the right to that. It seems more, I have the right to live without you killing me, or something like that. So, how does things? How do how do policies and things people say, like we have the right to health care or the right to a living wage, fit into this whole idea of rights?
1: Well, that's right. Um, Modern political philosophers uh, do talk about this distinction between negative liberty and positive liberty, or negative rights and positive rights. I don't particularly like that language. For one thing, I think the idea of every person has rights and has a right to live his life as he or she chooses um, is a beautiful, positive Life-affirming, life-expanding idea. So calling it negative liberty or negative rights um, just doesn't ring right to me. But the idea is that a positive right is I have a right to this and you have an obligation to supply it. Negative rights means I have a right for you not to do this to me. So my negative rights are that you must not hit me and take my stuff. Um, Positive rights would imply if you have a right to health care, then someone, doctors, taxpayers, someone is is obligated to provide those things. And I think that's a misconception of what rights are. And I would just prefer that we use some other term. Don't say right. Say, I'm not sure what it would be, but we we already have the term rights and it means the natural so-called negative right to live as you choose and be left alone by coercive force. When we say left alone, I think we may confuse people. We're not saying that we want to live on the side of a mountain with no one living around us. I don't want to be left alone in that sense. I think most of us are feeling right now that we're left alone too much because we're not going out. We're not having fun with friends. We're not going to dinner parties. We're not going to the office. We're not going to football games. Um, Libertarianism is certainly a philosophy of social cooperation. Um, We want to have family and friends and co-workers, um, customers and clients and providers. Um, We want to participate in what Adam Smith called the great society, the society beyond our own household or maybe beyond our own clan, the great society of all of us. So we can overemphasize this idea of the right to be left alone. Um, We want to be left alone in terms of the use of force against us. If I am a peaceful person going about my business, not taking anybody else's property or assaulting anybody, then I should be left alone by the police, by the government. But being left alone that way, I am then able to work with other people in partnerships, in corporations, in contractual relationships, as well as churches and clubs and neighborhood groups and all those things. So as I said, this actually is a philosophy of social cooperation. Libertarians think cooperation is so important that we want to make rules that make it possible. And what makes cooperation possible is to begin with, I know what is mine and you know what is yours and your life and your body are yours. My life and my body are mine, but also this hammer is mine. This rake is yours. This um, this mortar is yours and these bricks are mine. And it sounds like we could make a deal there and build a house with these tools and these raw materials that we have. If I have, you know, in the in the Robinson Crusoe example, if I have fish and you have apples, we can make a trade and we'll both be better off. We'll both have a more balanced diet, more interesting diet. And that's, you start from there and you can just build up to the kinds of cooperation that eventually allow, and I talk about this in my book, that eventually allow me to get off an airplane in a city I've never been in the middle of the night and go to a, a slot in the wall of a building and put in a card and get out cash so I can do business uh, in that country. Of course, these days, I'm not sure people even get cash when they go to foreign countries because that card connects the whole world. And when I hand that card to someone in Bangladesh – they will accept it in return for a hotel room or a meal because an instantaneous connection tells them that I am who I say I am and I have money enough to pay for this and the money will come right off that card out of my account uh, to them. Um, So that's the kind of social cooperation we want, but it starts with respecting everyone's rights uh, to their own life, liberty, and property.
0: In your book, you talk about the natural rights tradition going all the way back to the 17th century. Can you give us a short biography of this tradition?
1: Well, I do think 17th century mostly means John Locke, although you certainly could say the levelers, the people in the English Revolution, who were sort of the original proto-liberals, the people who were developing ideas that became liberalism, but that were then enunciated more fully in uh, John Locke's second treatise and building from that, I think really the building blocks of the modern world are John Locke's theory of justice and Adam Smith's theory of spontaneous order in the economy. Um, Those things Uh, together create modern liberalism, modern libertarianism. So you have John Locke, and then you have it being applied in the case of the American Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and then a constitution designed to respect and protect those rights and A lot of times people will you know, say, the Constitution gives me the right to free speech. No, it actually doesn't. It protects your right to free speech. You already had that right because you're a human being. Nobody has the authority to stop you from speaking your mind. The Constitution in the First Amendment says, we guarantee that you have that right. And then the development of the natural rights idea, for instance, in the anti-slavery movement, people started saying hey, how can we say all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights? And then black men are held in chains. There's something wrong with that. And the abolitionists, and then also the women's rights advocates of the time, started applying these ideas and saying, you know, this isn't just for white men. This is for everybody. We now understand all men are endowed by their creator to mean all people. But Obviously, that idea had not been as fully explored back then. And then writers like John Stuart Mill and Herbert Spencer applied this idea in the 19th century, pointed out areas where government was violating it, debating exactly what it meant. Um, And then in the 20th century, further development, the development of the whole concept of human rights and human rights law that's all built on the fundamental idea of natural rights. When you say people have human rights and the government is violating them, whether you're talking about the United States or Myanmar, that's all going back to that fundamental idea of natural rights.
0: So now let's talk about what libertarians aren't. What do you say to people who think that libertarians are heartless because they have objections to redistribution, especially the kind that progressives in our country are talking about?
1: Well, I think we're particularly in that respect saying those plans you're talking about won't work. You know, I think you said earlier, uh, what is natural rights libertarianism and other kinds of libertarianism? Well, I do think it's true. You can be a libertarian without actually believing in natural rights. I know uh, there are libertarians who say, that just, that just sounds like religion to me, and I don't, I don't buy religion. Um, so another way to get to libertarianism is to look at history and to say, when whether or not you believe rights actually exist, when governments act as if people have rights and respect people's decision-making, does society work better or worse? Huh, it looks like in the societies where they respected people's Uh, freedom to make their own decisions. Things work better. Um, You can have people who come to that conclusion through the science of economics. Um, What happens if we make this law? Well, it turns out, if you look closely, pretty much all these laws interfering with decisions and contracts will end up having counterproductive results. You say, Nobody should have to work for less than $10 an hour. Let's pass a minimum wage law to say nobody can be paid less than $10 an hour. Well, that's great if you get a raise to $10 an hour. But if your employer goes out of business because she can't afford to pay everybody $10 an hour, or if you lose your job because your employer says... The work you're doing just isn't delivering $10 an hour worth of value. I can't keep you on at this. And of course, jobs get eliminated all the time in the free market. Sometimes because we get more efficient. We just don't need as many people doing a particular job. Sometimes because we get wealthier and human labor costs more. Why do fewer people have maids and butlers and parlor maids and, and cooks in their houses? Mostly because Society got richer, and fewer people find domestic service their best option. Um, But one reason that jobs disappear is because the minimum wage law just makes it impossible to justify people paying that much. So other kinds of libertarianism. One kind uh, might be called utilitarian or consequentialist. I'm a libertarian because I see that the consequences treating people in this natural rights way are good. And the consequences of interfering in this natural rights uh, perspective uh, are bad. Um, so when you say, and now I've drifted all over, what was your
0: question? I was talking about objections to redistribution, and how like we were heartless. Just well, that, that's,
1: of- okay. That's, that's right. So, Yes. And and that's the problem when we say the right to be left alone or, you know, the the early American flag, don't tread on me. Um, Some people say, well, that's selfish. You just you just want to hold on to your own money. You don't care about other people. We say, well, we do think it's a better world if you respect everybody's rights. Once you give the government the power to start deciding that I can take money from some and give it to others. I can tell people they must contract for this, and they, they can't they can't uh, get out of that contract. Um, that's intrusive and illiberal or unlibertarian. But it's also true we believe that a growing economy. Why are we thirty times richer than our great 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 grandparents in 1800? Because we've had a robust market working. Because we've had the miracle of compound interest and sustained growth investment for the future all those things that's what brought britons and americans out of poverty that's what then brought europeans out of poverty and is now bringing chinese and indians out of poverty you yeah. so, so you so if you interfere with that whether that's a minimum wage law or or a farm program where we pay farmers to to grow some things and pay them not to grow other things. And if we spend, if we tax and spend a great deal of money, then the market will be less efficient and we won't get as much better off as we were. And it's people who are poor. You know, the kings, they lived okay. We could have a discussion of how they actually didn't live as well as middle class people today. But compared to other people in their time, the kings and the nobles lived well. What capitalism, the free market, the system of liberalism did was allow other people to rise to, to living well, like the nobility did. And that's what we worry about when people say, let's make another regulation, let's raise taxes, let's raise spending, let's go into debt, that all of that is going to reduce economic growth. And, you know, if I tell you, if you do those things, you will reduce economic growth from 4% to 3% a year. You may say, well, so what, 4%, 3%, if you can help people, is that such a big deal? Well, the thing is, if you grow at 4% a year, then you, uh, you double your society's standard of living in 18 years, knock it down to 3%. And then you double your society standard of living in 24 years, knock it down to 2%. And now we're at 36 years. And when you go from the 18 years to the 36 years, that means kind of like a whole generation that you have lost economic growth. And again, the growth is so important for the people who are poor. That's what we're worried about eliminating through all these government programs.
0: Libertarians have been at the forefront of lots of fights for equality and rights for women, minorities, everyone. Um, you talk about this in the book, but specifically you point out that in 1972, the libertarian party had gay rights as a part of its platform, which at the time was considered, um, like homosexuality was considered a mental illness, even by healthcare professionals. And it, was a crime sometimes. People of my generation, I feel like, take this for granted, at least most of the time. But can you tell us about what a difficult and heartbreaking battle it was?
1: Well, that's that's right. And that's one of the things I said at the beginning here, is young people, understandably, don't necessarily know what went before them, and they particularly don't remember the way the world was, even for those of us who are older. It's kind of hard to remember. I didn't feel poor in the 1960s, and yet when I think about the material standard of living I had as a middle-class American, I realize, boy, middle-class Americans have a much better standard of living today. But when you talk about things like um, minority rights, women's rights, gay rights, and the and kind of the most recent set of those uh, changes was the, uh, the development of gay rights. It was definitely the case as late as the 1960s that there were hardly any openly gay people in America, that is people who were homosexual, men or women, and who acknowledged that <laughs> a picture of their spouse on on their desk at the office. That just didn't happen. Um, Everyone was, as we said then, in the closet. If you were gay, um, you didn't talk to people about it. And to the extent that you could find other gay people uh, to talk to or to date, um, it had to be very secretive, um, very difficult process. And then a few people did start standing up and saying, Um, we're not going to put up with this anymore. We, too, uh, were given a promissory note by the Declaration of Independence that our inalienable rights would be respected, and we want our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And there certainly were libertarians among that early group. And then, yes, the Libertarian Party, the first sort of formally libertarian organization in the modern uh, United States, In 1972, wrote a party platform that called for the elimination of all victimless crime laws. At the time, people could actually be arrested for having sex. Um, And certainly people couldn't get married, couldn't adopt. uh, And as I say, couldn't even be that they would likely get fired from most jobs if they were known to be gay or lesbian. And the Libertarian Party said, no, that's all wrong. Um, people should have equal rights. And uh, as I said, I think not in the book, but in an article I wrote uh, a little bit later, that year, the Democratic nominee for vice president, Sergeant Shriver, who was a brother in law of the Kennedys, complained about the queers complaining uh, at one of his campaign events. So that's how, that's how backward the Democratic Party was in 1972 and how progressive the libertarians were. And then right up until recent years, uh, the Cato Institute and other libertarians were filing amicus briefs in the courts to push to get rid of the laws that made it illegal to engage in gay relations um, and to change the marriage laws to acknowledge marriage equality. So yes, I think gay people, uh, libertarian people um, who were not all gay, were involved in that effort for more than forty years that ended up being extremely successful.
0: I had no idea that you could get arrested for something like that. That's kind of, that is crazy. I mean, I'm not surprised. But like what?
1: And let me see, I believe it was nineteen eighty seven that the Supreme Court upheld the law in Texas that had been used to arrest Uh, I that time that time it was in Georgia uh, that was that was used to arrest two men who were engaging in sexual activity. Um, Later in was it 2003, the Supreme Court reconsidered that decision and struck down laws that uh, restricted such activity.
0: That's crazy. I feel like that wasn't even that long ago, which is mind blowing. I mean, I don't even know. What are other battles that libertarians have fought and won, or at least made progress on?
1: Well, depending on how you define libertarianism, if you include classical liberals who believed in the rights of life, liberty, and property, who believed in human rights and free economies, competitive economies, um, then you can go back to the American Revolution was one of those successful battles. The repeal of the corn laws in Great Britain, which just meant tariffs, protection. Um, protecting the, uh, the, the growers of wheat and corn in England against importation. Um, you can talk about, and, and, and then, of course, the anti-slavery movement. People like Lysander Spooner and Frederick Douglass, you read what they write, they're writing libertarian language. They're writing about natural rights and self-ownership. They're calling slavery man-stealing because you're stealing the actual essence of the man from himself. Um, then you go on to the fight against imperialism in the late 19th century, uh, in England especially. Um, and in more modern times, uh, we could certainly point to the battle to end the draft. This is one of the things, you know, when, it, when I encounter a young man, not so much a young woman, um, but if I encounter a young man saying, Oh my God, we're losing all our freedoms, we're not free, I'm like, You know, young fellow. When I was 17, 18, 20 years old, I was worried about being drafted into the army and sent to Vietnam. And you're not worrying about that because we got rid of the draft. And libertarians were very much involved in that. One of the uh, leading critics of the draft who was was directly involved in a uh, commission that recommended a volunteer army was Milton Friedman. (coughs) One of the great libertarians of the second half of the 20th century, but there were a lot of other economists involved in commissions and efforts like that, too, and there were libertarians involved in street protests and so on. When I was young, and we still did have the draft, um, there were rallies, marches against conscription, and libertarians were involved in that. Uh, The drug war is another thing that libertarians absolutely were on the cutting edge saying early on it is wrong to arrest people because of what they eat or drink or smoke or inject. Um, And again, involved in protests, street uh, rallies and things like that, but also in research and analysis and legal activity. And We've made a lot more progress on gay rights and getting rid of the draft than we have on the drug war. But we have made some progress. And these days, in about half the states, you won't be arrested for smoking marijuana. Now, the laws are kind of complicated. And some places, you know, you can own it, but nobody can sell it to you, which is a curious possibility. Um, in other places, it has to be for medicinal use, although some places are pretty uh liberal about what they consider a medicinal use. But I think all of those things are places where we've made a difference. And I think actually another one just over the past 30 years or so is changing the view of the American judiciary, particularly on the right side of the political spectrum. I think there was a time Around the up to the time of the Bork nomination, uh, I think in 1987, when conservatives were saying basically Congress and the state legislatures can do anything they want to unless it's specifically prohibited in the Bill of Rights. And some libertarian scholars like Richard Epstein, Randy Barnett, and Roger Pilon started writing, no, the Constitution gives the government no authority to do. Many of the things it does. And so, even if there's not a specific uh, right in, in, enumerated in the Bill of Rights, the government doesn't have the constitutional authority to do this. And I think over the past 30 years, a lot of conservative judges and law professors have changed their minds on that and believe in a, uh, a more vigilant judiciary, a judiciary whose job is to say, Whenever a law is passed, does the Constitution authorize the government to legislate in this area? And if it doesn't, then it can't legislate. And we've won some um, judicial victories in that area. Um, and, and I think libertarians played a significant role in pushing uh, lawyers and law professors and judges and even Supreme Court justices in that direction.
0: I think there, there seem to be more libertarians now than there were decades ago and more libertarian like think tanks and stuff like that. Yet with the current political movement and or moment, both things, you know, um, and both parties, they kind of make it feel like libertarians are in a rough spot. They're like authoritarians everywhere on both sides, just all over the place. Um, On the economic freedom side, things are also kind of rough. There's like protectionist policies are coming back. Spending is insane. Even though weed is legal now – well, not legal. It's decriminalized and that – it's – the war on drugs is still kind of very powerful. And there's all the whole virus thing. Um, Our lives are still kind of controlled by lots of regulations. Can you talk about what that means for kids my age?
1: Well, it does depend partly on over what period are you thinking about? You know, are things getting worse in the past three years, the past five years, the past 25 years? You might get different answers depending on which of those reference points you're using. For instance, um... Yes, you're absolutely right. Authoritarians seem to be all over both sides of the uh, political spectrum right now. But if we go back to 1977, the year Cato was founded, and when I was a young man coming out of college, um, half a third of the world was controlled by communism. And Democrats were permanently in charge of Congress. And both of those things have changed and have opened up uh, both the world and the American political system. You can also talk about how there were only three television networks back then. Now there are hundreds of television networks. Um, That has some bad effects because people start listening to the network that tells them everything they already believe instead of a broader uh, range. But still, it means more competition and everything. In 1977, um, we had just ended the draft for the Vietnam War, so that was good. Um, In 1978 through 1980 or so, we cut tax rates and we deregulated much of the economy. We had regulations that had been passed in the 1930s in the New Deal. We finally got rid of them in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and that helped to create a booming economy in the 1980s. Um, trade around the world was getting freer. More people in more countries could trade with more people in other, in more other countries. Um, so that was all good. These days, the last few years, it does seem the Republican Party has become more protectionist and nationalist. And the Democratic Party has become more Uh, inclined toward taxes and spending um, even more than it was before. On the other hand, some people on the left side of the political spectrum uh, perhaps have become more concerned about things like drug laws and police brutality than they were before. So that's a good thing. On the Republican side, one of the questions is whether this is a temporary phenomenon related to President Trump. Who's very much a protectionist and nationalist, um, or whether it is a more general shift. I think one of the things libertarians should be thinking now is we're part of liberalism, the historic philosophy of liberalism, and the philosophy that I do believe a lot of Americans still broadly believe. Markets, not as markets maybe not as free as libertarians want, taxes not as low as libertarians want. But low taxes, low regulation, <coughs> excuse me, um, open markets, not crony capitalism, um, and also social tolerance, social liberalism, women's rights, gay rights, a welcoming attitude toward immigrants. I do believe there may still be a plurality of people who are in what we could call the libertarian center. They're not ideologues. They haven't read Locke or Robert Nozick or or my book, um, but they do generally believe um, the government shouldn't tax us too much, and it shouldn't tell people who they can marry and what they can smoke. Why would the government do that? Um, and and libertarians need to be finding that constituency of peaceful, tolerant, and productive people, and I think that's a challenge for us right now to to find and organize that constituency against the authoritarians on both left and right.
0: Finally, what is something you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why?
1: Well, I would say I started out um, as a conservative. And so I changed my mind on a lot of things. In fact, the first published article I ever wrote when I was 14 years old was a call for victory in Vietnam. So changed (laughs) my mind on that. Um, I think early on, I certainly did not. I I thought the government was too big. Conservatives are for freedom, right? Uh, But I didn't believe that that drugs should be legal. Um, So I changed my mind on that. More generally, I think the more I've learned about market processes, the greater my appreciation for them has become. And that's not exactly changing my mind, but it does mean I'm less likely these days to say, well, it sure looks like that kind of economic freedom isn't working very well. Um, So so in, in, in that way, I have changed my mind because I'm now more confident that on the whole market processes will deliver more good to more people than interference with market processes will. And when you hear something that sounds like, Ooh, maybe that's, maybe that's too much uh, economic freedom. It's probably because you haven't studied it enough and you should (laughs) look at how The market is actually working, how it is actually satisfying consumer demand in a way that maybe you didn't see at first. Um, But we should all be open to changing our minds. And I hope that I remain open to being challenged on any of my ideas.
0: That's what I hope for myself and for everyone I know and everyone who's listening right now. Thank you so much. It was such an interesting conversation. I feel like I learned a lot and I hope that everyone listening also learned a lot. Go read his book. It's very good. And if you're interested in stuff like this, that's the exact thing you should be looking into. So thank you, David.
1: Yeah, Thank you. It's a pleasure.